You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Noam Osterman is one of the leading um, teachers, researchers um, about entrepreneurship in the world. He's got a best-selling book called The Founder's Dilemma that I'd encourage you to read. I've, I've assigned it to one of my classes. Um, he began his career at the Harvard Business School 15 years ago as an MBA. The faculty there quickly identified somebody that they knew would be a world-class teacher and asked him if he would join them. And he got his doctorate, began teaching soon after, and he's been just making the world better ever since. So Noam, come on up. I don't want to spend any more time than I have to. Noam Osterman. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to the other Tom. Thank you to Tina. Thank you to Matt and everyone else who's been arranging everything for reaching out, asking me to come up here. Um, I'm going to drive the cameraman crazy because I tend to roam the room. Uh, my wife actually gets very excited when our semester is starting because she knows that about a month later I will be about 10 pounds lighter. And so this is going to be maybe a little bit of a different style from the usual that you have here at ETL, but uh, very much looking forward to also tapping a bunch of your experiences and insights as we get into a bunch of the issues that we're going to be looking at. In particular, a bunch of the founding dilemmas that people who have either been down that path or are thinking about going down that path uh, should be thinking about, should be going in a little bit deeper than what our natural inclination is, and that's what some of the things that I'm going to be talking about at the beginning are. So I'm going to start out with a happy topic, that topic being failure, entrepreneurial failure in particular. This is something that we all hear about, something that is an amorphous fact of life that we just have to take as a given, that a very high percentage of startups are going to fail. And so in between all of the wringing of the hands, all of the dreading that this might be the future of what we're heading towards, I happened to run into an article that was written 25 years ago. Uh, from what I understand, it's actually the only other HBS professor who has come to ETL and has visited and talked about his research. This is not what he would have talked about. This is what was not at all a focus of his at the time, but it was a professor named Bill Salman. And Bill was going in back then to try to go and explore inside a black box. That black box being venture capital. What do venture capitalists do? What does their job entail? Going into all the different dimensions of it. How do they go and get deal flow? How do they go and assess investments? How do they do due diligence? How do they negotiate term sheets? Once they've negotiated and made the investment, what do they do when they come on board? And so Bill was understanding all of these different dimensions of venture capital and what do venture capitalists do. Fortunately, along the way, he also thought to ask them, what was a very small part of his paper, what was a critical question for me, that when I saw this one line and this one data point within his paper, it hit me like a ton of bricks that this is where I should then devote the last dozen years of my life. So high impact, one line and one data point. What he went and asked them about was about the parts of their portfolio that we would never hear about. The parts of their portfolio that they would never issue press releases bragging about how they had done, that they would not be posting them these days on their websites. That happens to be the parts of their portfolio that failed. Tell us about these startups that you thought were so high potential that you invested in them, but then they ended up on the dustbin of history. What are the reasons that they failed? And Bill went in with his ideas and same kind of things that I would have gone in with of thinking about what that list would look like. What are the leading reasons for failure of these high potential startups? And what he found was, lo and behold, about 35% of the reasons for failure were those things that we would have thought about. What today we would call product market fit problems or issues within functions as you're trying to develop your product. And then once you have it developed, as you're trying to go tackle the customers, get them to pay, support them, all of these other functional reasons, those were indeed a little bit more than a third of all of the reasons for failure. There was, though, one predominant reason for why these high potential ventures had failed. That potential failure reason was 65%. They were the people problems. 
the interpersonal tensions between the founders as things are getting off the ground, or the tensions between them and the hires who were brought in to complement them, or the other people who are getting involved as you're trying to build your high potential venture, you're trying to pursue that opportunity, and bringing all of these other pieces on board. And so those people issues, those fuzzy things, the interpersonal and the human, were what were the key reasons for why these ventures had failed. And when I saw this, this said to me that this is where we might be able to move the needle, where we might be able to shrink that high rate of failure by understanding what are those people problems, being able to diagnose them also would enable us to develop some actionable ways to avoid a bunch of those early decisions that you make about people that can then lead to disaster for even the highest potential of ideas. And so this is where I have focused my time in understanding what are those problems and then how can we counteract them. One big problem that we face as we head into founding is that we don't have a roadmap of what that road ahead looks like. We lack a roadmap of where is this possibly going to take us, what are the key forks in the road where we're going to be predestining ourselves to some kind of destination that maybe we don't expect. That is the roadmap of the venture. There's also the roadmap of yourself, understanding yourself, especially as you are a first-time founder, of understanding what makes you tick, what motivates you, what are your strengths and weaknesses, what are the places where you're going to have to think twice before you dive into what you think is going to be a rocket ship, and instead it turns out to be a roller coaster ride. You've never been through the bottom of the roller coaster ride as the world is crashing in on you. Do you know if you're going to be able to persist through it? And so those two levels of roadmap are the key things that we face as first-time founders as we're heading out now that we've had this idea and we're trying to go and pursue that opportunity of not having those two roadmaps as being a key thing that leads to that 65% number. In lieu of having that roadmap, what do we rely on? What are the things that we substitute for that roadmap? Well, there's some very natural things that we go and use. We go and we follow our gut. We go during those early passionate days and follow our intuition. We are listening to anecdotes that we hear from other people who have experienced these types of things, have gone down that road one time. We go and follow rules of thumb that have developed over the years. Overall, this is what is driving a bunch of the entrepreneurial decisions that are out there. It used to be for these talks, it's possible this is what Bill Salman did back then, that it was mandatory that you would have a Dilbert slide. Now, these days, it's mandatory, especially where we're talking here, that what's mandatory is a Steve Jobs quote. For me, my favorite Steve Jobs quote is, follow your heart, but check it with your head. Make sure that you're thinking hard before you go and pursue these passionate, idealistic rules of thumb and anecdotes. Before you go and do that, make sure you're thinking hard about them. And so what I've focused on over the last decade is understanding where is it fine to go and follow your heart? Where are your instincts possibly going to be right and productive ways to go, but more importantly, where actually do you have to step back and realize that following your heart might be leading you to more perils than you expect, might be leading you to a higher chance of ending up on that dustbin of history. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on, a bunch of those key forks in the road, where the natural inclination is actually something that you should say, whoa, let me hold on. Let me make sure I'm thinking clearly about where this is going to lead. Let me make sure I understand what is the norm about where things go if I make this choice to go right. What are the ways in which I should be thinking about going left? What are those trade-offs going to be if I go in each of those directions and the long-term outcomes of them? And so we're going to be focusing on those key places where you should be thinking twice, making sure that you're injecting in the head to be the counter to that heart-driven set of decisions that is that natural inclination. For us to do that, we're going to tap two pieces of data. The first of them, just given where I pick up my paycheck, will be some mini case studies. We'll be going in and understanding founders, their thought processes, the dynamics within the team, the deep dives into their inside stories so that we can understand how they were thinking about those decisions before they made them and then what some of those outcomes were for them. Overall, I tap about three dozen of them very deeply in the book that Tom was referring to. That is where I'm able to go and sketch out a whole bunch of the landscape of understanding what was going into the thought processes 
And then what were some of the dynamics and how they were affected? However, cases being anecdotes per se, the critical thing for me has been to match that up with quantitative data, with also being able to have a much more rigorous feel for what are the most likely outcomes to come out of things. And that's where I'm going to be tapping. You'll see some data slides along the way. Data that I've collected on 10,000 founders. A bunch of things on their backgrounds, how they came together, the early decisions they made, how they went about tackling things inside the team, how they went about inviting in other people to help them with the venture, and also the outcomes that it led to. And so when you see the data slides, it's going to be coming from that data set. One thing to keep in mind along the way is that that data set is coming from the two biggest industries in the U.S. for high-potential ventures. Those are coming from tech and coming from life sciences. And so if you are coming from a different geography or coming from a different set of industries, a small business and things like that, something to keep in mind, a bunch of the forks in the road we're going to be looking at are going to be relatively universal, are also going to apply in those domains. But the data that I show you on how common are some of these decisions and a bunch of the choices, those might differ for those other contexts that you're coming from. But that is what we're going to be tapping as the quantitative data backbone of what we're going to be going and examining as we go and shine the light of data on a bunch of these gut-level decisions to try to understand where do we have to inject the head in before we go and follow them. And so that's the context of what we're going to be heading into. This is just going to be the first of three passes we're going to take, peeling back the onion. This is going to be a very shallow going, skimming across the surface of all of the dilemmas that I examine. And then we're going to take a pass at doing a little bit deeper in terms of two of the arenas, and then two deep dives into specific dilemmas within each of those arenas. And so first, as we go through and you look at even some of the pre-founding elements of what you're going to be facing, when to found and a whole bunch of the pre-founding dilemmas you face, the career you build on the way to it, the stage of life when you are founding, how you balance that when lightning strikes and you get passion for an idea, how you are going to decide on whether it is time to leap. For this, if there are people who are grappling with this, I'm going to punt on this to another resource for you. Uh, the Kaufman Foundation did a sketchbook, a short thing to walk you through the thought process that we've developed around that in terms of making these decisions. There are four par particular pitfalls when it comes to those pre-founding decisions. Three of them are driven by passion that then becomes a bunch of your Achilles heels. The fourth of them is driven by your caution that becomes your Achilles heel. And so I'd point to you, and I'll show you at the end, a set of resources that you can go to, this being one of them, for being able to go and have this walk you through some of that thought process. So we're going to focus far more on what follows after this. Once you've decided that you're going to go and make the leap, a whole bunch of the other forks in the road that you're going to be facing along the way. A key thing to look at is that at each of these stages, you are injecting in a brand new type of player that especially if you're a first-time founder, you have never dealt with that type of person. The pre-founding is happening in the head of the core founder and the decision to leap or not. Then once you've decided to leap, you've never dealt with co-founders. You might not even know where to look for them. You don't know a whole bunch of the pitfalls that might be facing you as you go and involve these very early people who are potentially going to help you build a bunch of value, but as we'll see, also introduce a bunch of risks. And so as you're heading into now injecting in the co-founder, that's one of the key things that you have to understand and have a roadmap through. This is going to be the first of those places that we're going to do that next level down, the co-founder dilemmas. Then hires, as you're bringing them on board, non-founders, are they going to have different incentives, different things that make them tick, different capabilities that they're being brought in to fill holes? Do you understand how those differences might lead to problems within the team? how they might introduce their own challenges. Each of these new players is going to introduce new dilemmas for you, change the dynamics, and lead to other outcomes than you would have had otherwise. And so understanding each of these key new people that you're injecting in as being one of those key elements of that roadmap. Then, next words, heading into the investor side. If you've never taken money from investors, do you understand where there might be disconnects, where there might be misalignment, where they will be bringing very valuable things to the venture if you had chosen them right and if you understand what those holes are that they're going to be able to fill, but also some of the other challenges that they introduce by bringing on that brand new type of person. 
And so as we go through each of these different pieces, the two that we're going to do the next deep dive into are going to be the co-founder ones to get an idea of some of the microcosms of issues there, and then the investor side, understanding a little bit of some of those trade-offs that that can give us a feel for a microcosm of the recurring dilemmas that you're going to face. And so what we're going to head into now is those next down on each of these, and then after that second pass for founding teams, we're going to take one of the dilemmas and do the deepest dive into that before we move on to investors. So here are founding team dilemmas. This is where we're assuming that the light bulb has gone off. You've evaluated it. You've gone through the thought process, hopefully avoided the passion becoming your downfall, the caution becoming the end of any of those aspirations, and instead you've decided, okay, now's the time to make that leap. Key early fork in the road, if not the first of the forks. We're going to take a look at where we're going to have very different ways that you can go in terms of the co-founder side. What do we think this option is? Go it alone. Solo founding. Be Superman. Take the weight of the world onto your broad shoulders. Try to leap that building in a single bound all by yourself. Within my data set, even though this is a very valid choice if you've thought very clearly about whether you are what it takes to become a solo founder, only 16% of the ventures are solo founded. Far more the case that people head down the bottom path over here. 84% of them deciding to go the co-founding route. Just deciding to go down that path leads to a bunch of ripple, de excuse me, ripple decisions for you. We're going to take in particular a look at three of them. The three that my data have shown are particularly influential in terms of where the team is going to go. We're going to call these the three R's. There's going to be the relationships, the roles and decision making, and the rewards. What we're going to have is one slide on each of these, and then going to go deep dive into the third of them. So first, stepping back, looking at the relationships options. What do we think this decision is? Founding with friends, founding with the people that you have prior social relationships with that you don't know in the professional realm. What's even more extreme than founding with friends? <laughs> founding with family. <laughs> in my course, we have a case on what we call the couplepreneurs, the significant others who are coming together to found. This is a very different model compared to co-founding with the people that you have prior professional relationships with. Key fork in the road on this relationship side of who am I going to tap as that source of co-founders. This, we're not going to have the time to go deeply into this, but there's some critical pitfalls that you face along the way. Which one do we think is going to be more common of how people go with where they look for co-founders? Friends? How many people say friends is going to be friends or family? Okay, how many people say no, the other side of the ledger, the dream team type? Okay, interesting. The, the hands here happen to match what the data says. And keep in mind, this is within tech ventures, within life sciences, where you would expect a lower percentage of founding with friends and family than within small businesses and things like that. And yet, more than 50% of the teams in my data set go with this left option. Go with founding with the people that they know socially, but not professionally. So A, one thing is the preponderance of that decision. Which one of these decisions do you think is a better one to go with? Which do you think is going to lead to a more stable team? Professional. Professional? Okay, people agree? Okay. This happens to be where we can see a very common theme throughout a bunch of these decisions. The most common of the decisions are the most fraught with peril. The teams, the social side teams, the friends and family, the data shows are the least stable of all the types of teams. They are the most likely to lose a founder sooner, despite the glue that you would expect to be keeping them together. And so that most common of decisions, more than 50% of the ventures, are leading themselves down a path of playing with fire of having a decision that could lead to forging a stronger team and bringing them to the glory that they are seeking when they go and tap that source of co-founders, 
but also is very likely when you're playing with fire to burn you. Another very common pattern though is that for those teams there are actionable things that you can do when you're playing with fire to create firewalls that will protect you. To increase the chances that you'll be able to have that glory without having the disaster that could be awaiting you if you go down that path. And so that's one of the key things. We don't have time to get into those actionable pieces. But breaking down the playing with fire element, there are three key risks that go into that. And then being able to architect key steps you can take to manage each of those risks as you're shooting for that glory is one of the key things to think about as you are heading into this. I've often found also that founders who have already gone down this path, who have co-founded with friends and family, are the ones that are the most reluctant to go and really acknowledge the risks that they might be taking. And so there's some danger also of saying, that won't be me. That will be able to avoid it. We'll be able to be that glorious team. Thinking hard about what the data across 10,000 founders says, think hard about whether that won't be me is an approach you want to take when you are playing with fire, or whether going and architecting some actionable steps to be able to avoid a bunch of those risks are some of the things that you should be doing on the relationship side. So now moving briefly into the second of the R's. This is the roles and decision making. Where did Peter Pan live? Neverland. What were the characteristics of Neverland? Okay, no one ever grows up. We're all kids here. There's no adults. We have a great euphemism within startups for this. We call this, we make decisions by consensus. We are co-CEOs. One founder, one vote. Is it a good idea to be living in Neverland? A lot of times, this goes to a very preponderant pattern also, this might be the right decision early on. This could be the best way to go and launch the team. However, very different model. (laughs) Zeus atop Mount Olympus, handing down orders for the peons below. Very clear hierarchy, very clear place where the buck stops. Very clear way in which decisions get made. A lot of times as you go and you have gone and lived in Neverland and you grow to 10 people, to 20 people, to 30 people, can you keep being in Neverland? That's where you're going to have a bunch of the slowed down decision making, a bunch of the counterproductive dynamics that might be coming up within the team. All sorts of ways in which that early decision you made, which made perfect sense early on, can hamper your ability to grow as a startup. So then go and move to a Mount Olympus model. Isn't that going to be a smooth way to go? Is that going to be an easy transition to go and say to your two co-founders, you were part of every decision till now, you were a co-CEO, now you're going to have to be down further down on the mountain. We're going to have to have a clear element where you are having to step back. We might even have to hire people above you. Is that going to be an easy transition to make to that other model if the early expectations were very deeply that we are in Neverland and we are going to be able to continue to be that as we continue growing? And so another one of those preponderant decisions about early on, it makes perfect sense, but if you don't understand the road ahead, you might be setting yourself up for heightened tensions within the team rather than a lower set of problems that you're going to be facing on the interpersonal side. Also, highlighting that there's some decisions you can make where it's easy to hit the undo key, where it's easy for you to step back and reverse that decision. Other decisions, though, and this is a preponderant pattern, of it is really tough to hit the undo key once you've gone down that road. This goes back to as you started life as a computer engineer. Just basic system design. If you can go and design the system right to begin with, how much easier is it going to be to adjust things before you go and implement compared to you've developed the system and now you're realizing where there are flaws in it? Which one is going to be a lot easier to hit the undo key and to change your mind on it? And so all sorts of things when the human element comes in that makes it even harder than when we're just dealing with a system. And so to the extent there that you can understand where is it going to be hard to hit the undo key And that's where I have to inject more head into the decision, where I have to think a lot harder about the road ahead. That's one thing that the roles and decision-making dilemmas lead to. And the final one, 
Final R, rewards. What do we think that this is? What is the preponderant one of these? Equity split. Dividing up the ownership. The negotiation that every founder looks forward to having. The lowest tension negotiation that you're ever going to have about something that means a lot to you. This is where we're going to do a little bit of our deep dive and take the co-founder dilemmas and go a little bit deeper into understanding some of the pieces of it. Before we do, let's just step up a level, though, and see the key thing about these three R's as they're being a system. These are not just individual decisions, but also a collection of decisions that if they're not consistent with each other, if you've not thought hard about how there might be interactions, that that's where you could also be heightening the tensions within the team. The individual decisions might be right, but if they conflict, that's where you're going to be causing problems for yourself. So if you are co-founding with your best friend, you're going to be co-CEOs, and you come to that negotiating table, and you say to your best friend, I'm worth 60% of the pie. Is that going to be a recipe for kumbaya? Or is that going to be heightening those interpersonal tensions in ways that are going to be destructive for the path ahead as a team? So now we're going to do our deep dive into the rewards piece. Starting off again with a data point. 73% of the founding teams in my data set split equity within the first month. Split equity right at the beginning. Good decision? What do we think about this? Where would we put this on the ledger? Do we like this? Okay. What if I told you that more than half of those teams adopted a static agreement, adopted something that they're putting in place? Why don't you like that? Capability to update it ongoing, otherwise you're going to be stuck potentially. Like uh, your your example of Zipcar. Okay, we'll be getting a little bit into that. Uh, someone right ahead. So some of the uncertainties you're going to be facing, you're highlighting ones at the venture level and then also at the personal level. Okay, so beating up on this when you have the heights of uncertainty is that a good time to be splitting? Any people on the other side of that? Any people saying that yes? The 73%, that's a way to go? Interesting. I guess we can put this in the category of common decision that we actually think might be fraught with peril. Let's go and take a look at one of these teams. We're also going to inject in another data point. This is how the teams split. This is the pie chart of how equal the equity split is. A third of the teams following the 1 over N rule when you're splitting during the first month, so this is across all teams, when you're splitting during the first month, what do you think that number is about equal split? You think it's going to be higher or lower? A lot higher. Okay, a lot higher. Why? Because uh, they're making a, just a gut decision at that point, and it's typically you know, potentially two founders. Uh, okay, or three who are splitting equally, but you still say, hey, that's going to be... A lot higher? It seems like the, most, the easiest route for them to take at that point. Okay, given the uncertainties you highlighted, what's the best cut that we can take at how we should split? Probably looking to raise funding so I feel like they need to have something on paper. Okay, so interesting dynamics about how some outside parties, some of the later players that we're going to be talking about later, might inject themselves into this team decision. Okay, but the chances are indeed that when you are among that 73% splitting it early on, the chances are a lot higher that you are going to do that equal split. Okay? This is across all teams doing it at all times, much higher for that first month set of teams. So now we're going to take the example that was raised, and we're going to do a deep dive into that and contrast it with another team and their decisions. This is going to be the Zipcar team. Very prominent now, very well known, but this is back more than a decade ago when they were coming together as a team. Zipcar was founded by two women who knew each other socially. Their kids shared a daycare center. They lived near each other. They'd have chats during drop-off and pick-up time and were getting to know each other. One of the women had had a vacation to Europe and had seen a car-sharing service over there, liked it as a business idea. The two women also had a very 
laudable green streak, wanted to do something to help the environment here in the U.S. and saw that that great business idea could also help, taking cars off the road, having all sorts of additional implications for society here. And so they decided, hey, great idea, let's go and co-found together. Let's go and build this car sharing company. One of the founders, Robin Chase, had heard a horror story from a friend of hers who had been in a startup. High potential idea that had gotten derailed by the equity split negotiation. This goes back to hearing the anecdote that leads you down a certain path. What do we think that Robin decided to do? Decided to make sure, hey, let's get this out of our way. Let's make sure that this isn't going to derail us in the same way. What do you think Robin proposed? 1 over N, the 50-50 split. She reached out, shook across the table. Her co-founder agreed. And Robin breathed a sigh of relief and said, great, now the world is ours to go and conquer. We're off and running. We've gotten that out of the way. Over the next year and a half, Robin threw herself into the venture, became the heart and soul of Zipcar, crafting every element of the business model, partnerships with the car companies, parking lot by parking lot, wrestling a parking space to go and put her car. Her co-founder didn't even quit her day job, contributing from the sidelines, barely doing anything at the level that Robin was. If we're Robin, how are we feeling right now? What? Resentful. Resentful. Okay, that kind of captures a little bit of it. I usually have to bleep out the first of the responses that people give me. When Robin came to class to talk about this, you could see the angst eating her up in her face. What she said at that point was that that was the stupidest handshake I had ever made. Who knows about all of the other elements, some of the things that have been highlighted about the uncertainties that we face, about commitment, about skill sets, about strategy, all of these pieces of it, that because we had a divergence from that best-case scenario that I was thinking about, I have had a year and a half worth of angst eating me up that all of my hard work is going equally to my co-founder as it is to me. One of those perils of doing that early split, putting it in stone, thinking you've taken care of the problem, but it coming back to bite you. Let's go and contrast that to another team and the decisions that they made. There will be two key ways that this team made a different set of decisions. This team is from the other end of the pie chart. This is the Occam Technologies team. This was three prior co-workers, people who had worked together professionally, who were coming together to found. There are two key ways that they diverged from the Zipcar team. To me, the second one of them is the most critical. First, in terms of the first dimension, it was relatively obvious that they were not going to be contributing the same amount. One of the co-founders had worked for the other one, seven years his junior, it was pretty evident one of them was going to be a much bigger contributor than the other one. So they sat down. They already honed the ability to go and have a real dialogue about these tension-filled issues. And they sat down and hammered out the first element of a difference from zip cars, the uneven split. They ended up taking a cut at 50-30-20 as being their best estimate of where things were going to go in that long run. To me, the critical element is the second piece of it. What the Occam team did was they zoomed in on their uncertainties. They zoomed in on a bunch of these key risks of what they didn't know or where things were going to go. And in particular, they took the highest ranking of those and did a deep dive into a dialogue about how that might change for the team and how it might cause the Robin Chase problem for them. In particular, the biggest uncertainty that they had was around the involvement of the idea guy of Ken. They didn't know if Ken was going to be joining the team full-time. Ken had just become a first-time father as they were writing the business plan. Ken had never been a founder before. He'd never been a father before. Are these two compatible with each other? And so he didn't know how he was going to grapple with that. He also had a very nice job that he wasn't sure he was going to want to leave. 
And so they double-clicked on that set of uncertainties and went through three key scenarios that they did a deep dive into. When I was, this goes back to my computer engineering background, when I took a look at their founder agreement, I saw a series of if-then-else statements. (laughs) They took the scenario that is the Robin Chase scenario, the best-case scenario, and said, if Ken is on board full-time, then this is what the equity split is going to be. Else, if Ken is on board only part-time, the expected case scenario, then this is what the split will be. Else, worst case scenario, if Ken isn't on board at all, these are the buyout terms for us to reclaim his equity. That key element of going and tackling your biggest risks, your biggest uncertainties, rather than avoiding them, rather than punting on them. And also, when we're looking at these scenarios, which is the natural scenario that as founders we go and focus on? Is it going to be the worst case scenario? Is it going to be the expected case scenario? The, be- the best case scenario is the key one that we are going to be focusing on, which is very understandable. During those passionate early days when we're brimming with confidence, that's when we're going to be laying the plans that a Robin Chase does. She's going to be as committed as I am. We're going to be contributing our skills. We're all going to be lifting this heavy rock together as we go and try to pursue this. That's the very natural inclination that we have to fight as founders. We have to also think hard and understand what are the expected case scenarios and the hardest of all, what are the potential pitfalls we're going to face? What are the potholes in the road that if we go and architect a very fragile agreement like what Zipcar had done, when we hit one of those potholes, is that fragile agreement going to shatter and come crashing down to earth? And so forcing ourselves to understand what are the expected case scenarios, that's where the data can help in terms of understanding what across a large sample of entrepreneurs are the likely outcomes, and then also planning for the worst case scenario. Can we ever go and tackle all of the uncertainties that we face? So why should we bother trying that? Why should we have that kind of dialogue? What? The plan is always better than no plan. Okay. Sounds like a no-brainer. Why doesn't it happen? Sorry. Sounds like a no-brainer. Now you should go and plan. Yeah. Why doesn't it happen? Uncertainty. You don't have you don't have control of the future, so you know you never know what's going to happen. But but always better to have a plan. Okay. Rather than throwing our hands up in the air and saying we face so many uncertainties, what are we going to do about it? Let's just plow on. We cannot let the enemy of the perfect solution be do nothing. Going and tackling the highest of your risks, having that dialogue about how we can mitigate them, how we can go and architect ways to avoid the Robin Chase angst as being a critical thing. But what also happens in the team when you start teeing up these types of high-tension issues? That's where you are starting to force a bunch of that interaction that will lead to a more productive founding team dynamic and ability to deal with those issues. The equity split is only going to be the first of the high-tension issues that you're going to be facing together. Going and honing it, going and using a whole bunch of these things that we usually would likely avoid is a way for us to be able to hone the relationship within the team, build the trust, and be able to go forward when we hit more bumps in the road because we haven't just punted on those. What's the worst-case scenario if you are not compatible with your co-founder? What is the worst case scenario about when you're going to find that out? Too late, way down the road. Far better, we talk about fast fail with products. Far better for you to not do the punting that Robin Chase did. Far better to tee up those high tension issues early on and learn then that you're not compatible, that you're not going to be on the same page about these things, rather than going down the road and finding out way at the end of this initial stage that you are in together. And so all sorts of benefits that come from forcing yourself to look at those other scenarios and for being able to see that the uncertainties that we face, we should be matching them with dynamism in our agreements, in our expectations, in the things that we are putting in place early on as a team. And so that dynamic element, having that match our uncertainties 
as being a key thing that the Alcom team was doing and that Robin Chase very naturally avoided because of looking at that rosy scenario during those early passionate days. So now just stepping back and giving you a checklist of when is it fine to go with the Robin Chase model. If you can go and check off all of these things, I will sign off on your static agreement. First, at the venture level, as you are in that first month of founding, do you understand what your strategy is going to be? Do you understand what the business model is going to be that's going to enable you to make this into a business? Early on, when it comes to each of these, are you underestimating the fact? There's a great classic quote now about pivot, our new word for failure. Are you underestimating the fact that you're going to pivot on average three times? That all the things that you're going to be assuming during that first month about how stable our strategy and business model are could be tossed into the air all to come back down in a very different way. That's at the level of the venture. Then, as the strategy and business model are changing, within the team, do you know which skills are going to be needed? Do you know who's going to be playing each of those roles? And then individually for each of the founders, there's all sorts of things that can come up that with all the best of intentions might derail all the best of those plans. Commitment, we saw with Robin Chase, a bunch of the issues that are involved when you don't have full commitment from the founders. At the personal level, anyone familiar with what happened within the Microsoft team? Bill Gates, Paul Allen, what was the personal issue there? Just to shut them out. Okay. That was some of the early stuff, a bunch of the fisticuffs around equity that harmed the team. If you go and look in Paul Allen's book, his autobiography, he talks about some of those very pointed early missteps on the equity side. That because of what you were just talking about with some of the ways that Gates was approaching it, Allen says, after that, something in me died. Harming that side of the relationship between the team because of how they treated it. But what was the most dramatic of the personal developments, despite all the best of intentions? Okay, diagnosed with cancer. Just as the, as the PC revolution was taking off, three years before Microsoft's IPO, all the best of intentions within that team. But because you are founding, doesn't mean that life events will stop happening to you. And so all sorts of ways where even if you have all of these other things nailed down, where you have to be able to plan for that unexpected, there's all sorts of other ways that you can inject dynamism in. We just talked about one example with the Occam team about the scenarios-based one. Something as simple and dynamism of tapping some vesting terms, involvement or not, as being what this person is going to have to have to accumulate the other pieces of their equity. All sorts of other things that you can put in place to be able to deal with those uncertainties rather than punting on it. Is there anyone here who during that first month of founding would be able to put check marks in all six of these? Not a hand again? I would argue it's impossible for you to be in that state. That means don't underestimate those uncertainties. Don't go and architect something static. Go and make sure that you are doing your best to anticipate and avoid a bunch of these pitfalls that are going to be introduced by a bunch of those uncertainties if they come home to roost. So as we just step back from the founding team piece, just to take a look at some of the preponderant things that we've seen here, the early days of the passion and confidence that you lead you to look at the rosy scenarios. As you go and you match that up with following that gut or those anecdotes that you've heard as Robin Chase was, and then when we go and match that up by something very human, the human instinct to avoid conflict. Founders are human. Robin Chase thought she was avoiding the problem with equity splits, and yet she was heightening that problem for her. If we go and think that we've taken care of it, but it's because we've avoided having those high-tension dialogues where we can learn about each other, where we can erect very different plans, and if we're only looking at the rosy scenario... If we go and take all of these elements, any one of them can lead to a pitfall. Any one of them can heighten the chances that you are going to get burned by some of those decisions you make. When we put all of them together, 
That's where you're going to be asking for it within the team and heightening the chance that you're going to be blowing things up by a bunch of those early decisions. The decisions that are most common and lead to peril, the decisions that are the right short-term ones, but then in the long run can come back to bite you because it's hard to hit that undo key, and a bunch of the ones where you're neglecting to think hard about your uncertainties and going and architecting expectations and agreements to be able to adjust to it. Okay, so now with that as the dive into the co-founder side, now we're going to take a look at injecting in a later player usually, the investor side, the money hunt. There's going to be actually some parallels to the last of these slides that we took a look at. What do we think is this option if you head up this top path here? Bootstrapping. The financing equivalent of Superman. Doing it all yourself. Financing your venture with the seed money that you saved or your internally generated cash as you go forward trying to pursue this opportunity. Also some parallels if you head down the bottom of these paths. As you go and you think about injecting in that new player, that investor, we're going to have, again, one slide on each of these in terms of the people you are tapping, in terms of the implications for the roles, and the implications down the road of where they could lead to. What do you think is the first of these forks of the road? What might each of these decisions be? Okay, smart money, the smartest of smart money versus the dumbest of dumb money. Who are you going to take the money from? Very similar in some ways to who are the relationships that you're going to tap as you're looking for co-founders. Here, who are you going to be taking the money from that can have real implications for you down the road? What are some of the implications? of who you take the money from? What? The resources they provide for you. The resources they provide, the ways that they might fill in holes, the ways that they might give us things that we're neglecting otherwise, that we haven't been able to find other players to fill those in. Okay, so the potential we can build within the venture. Okay, sounds like a great way to go. What are some of the other implications? Go ahead. Their experience with the industry and their like, more mature guy. Okay, so one of those resources could be the guidance about the road ahead. They've been down this road that I've never been on, so the mentoring that they're going to give me. What are some of the other implications? This all sounds like all upside. What are some of the other implications for investor money? You're usually forced to launch a product before you're ready to get a return on investment. Okay, so maybe you have to accelerate a little bit more than you had planned to. You have to be swinging for the fences a little bit more. Okay. Good. What are the uh, terms and conditions associated with the money? Okay. What type of terms would you be worried about as a founder? Well, for example, if I'll take money from a venture capitalist, they'll ask for a certain amount of equity. Versus okay. Maybe someone might just provide the same amount of money for no equity, you know, just out of generosity. Okay, so selling the ownership to them. What often does selling the ownership to them come along with? What are you also giving to them? Control. Hey, control where? Where are you losing control? When you're, when you're the CEO, then you can easily uh, lead the company. So you can easily make decisions. But, okay. But after you share equity with them, then you have to satisfy the, those, those uh, venture capitalists as well. So okay. You lose control. Where are they going to be playing the biggest role within the company? The board. The board. Board of directors. Is that an important decision-making body? Is that something with important implications for roles and decision-making as you're looking at them overseeing all of these key decisions within the company? What are some of those most important of decisions that you would have given up here? Uh, hiring and firing and evaluating the founders and CEOs. Okay, so for the founder, as the founder CEO, you now have someone who's evaluating you, someone who is deciding whether you're going to be able to stay in that CEO seat. Control of the board. Okay, what are some of the other decisions that they would be controlling then? <coughs> okay, who gets hired potentially as your replacement? <laughs> Is this an easy thing for a founder to get this message? No, why not? 
It's never easy for anyone to get this message. Is it harder for a founder than for others? Why? It's your baby. <laughs> your baby. That's a pretty deep level of attachment here. I was the parent. I'm getting fired as the parent of the baby. You get to decide who the adoptive parent is going to be. This is at that heart level of the founder grappling with it. Let's go to one founder who's actually been to ETL recently. Jack Dorsey, talking about when he heard that message, when he was being fired as the founder CEO of Twitter. The punch in the stomach, the ton of bricks hitting you, a very visceral reaction that founders have to this message that you're getting fired as the parent of your baby. Is Jack the only one who has faced this? Is this a common thing that we, that we face within this realm? Well, let's go to the data. This is my data on, from founding, the percentage of founders who are still CEO. And then this is as the venture plays out and ages over time. Halfway across, a little bit more than four years old, half of the founders have been replaced as CEO. <laughs> Do we think that the norm would be that a founder raising his hand and volunteering to be replaced? 73% of these have been firings. 73% were where the board was initiating it. Rather than the founder saying, I can see where things are going, I can understand that roadmap, and I think that there's going to be someone better to be taking my place. So far more the case that you're getting blindsided by this very visceral message that you are no longer going to be the right person to parent this baby. Key things to think about as you're going in and involving those investors. At the C round, when ventures have raised their third round of financing, at that point, 52% of the founders have been replaced. Each round that you raise heightens the chances and also some key inflection points that change the challenges within the venture, leading to a heightened chance that you're going to get replaced as that CEO of your baby. So as we step back and see that fork in the road, very visceral reaction for the founder. How do we think the rest of the team, the loyal employees that that founder has brought together, is going to be reacting if fearless leader is really ticked off in having this visceral reaction to being replaced. What is that going to mean for the team? Are they all on board with this? Morale issues, potential turnover issues, all sorts of challenges. As they're bringing in a successor, is that going to be a recipe for glory? Is that going to be a way that we are building high potential ventures? Why would investors be doing this? Is this what VCs come on and do? Kill off companies? Why would we be seeing this? Go ahead. Uh, they want to sell the company. Okay. How is this going to increase the chances of selling it? They want to financially um, prepare the company to attract someone to buy it. Okay. Could the founder be doing that? No, it's more, it's more in terms of the investors. Okay, in terms of them? Wanting, wanting to get their, get their equity out, get their return on out quicker. Okay, inspiring the fearless leader, the best way to do that? Uh, possibly because maybe because it's, it's his baby and he would, he would actually push, push them from, he wouldn't want them to do that because he wants to keep that going. Okay, so that attachment to the venture, the other psychological things that we're talking about, might lead him to be hesitant to allow them to do that. Okay, go ahead. The company has outgrown uh, the founders. Okay, what does that mean? That the company is outgrown? From the skill set, uh, from the strategy, the growth, uh, pretty much on multiple factors. Okay, so a bunch of those forward-looking challenges 
We had what it takes to be the CEO until now. And now we have a very different set of challenges that this person is going to have. That tech founder, that scientific founder, that person was the ideal person to be leading the charge during the early development days. What happens then when you have a product to sell? That tech founder going out and buying his first suit to go make a sale? If not, does he even know how to interview a salesperson to take on that task? Does he even know how to structure their incentives to be able to put in a whole bunch of things in terms of building a sales team? All sorts of things just within that one function of brand new challenges that when you haven't gone down that road, you haven't developed skills in that function, where you're going to have real challenges. This goes back to one of the other things that heightens the chances of the founder being replaced. You complete product development, critical milestone within the venture. What happens when a venture finishes product development? What do they do? They celebrate. They throw a party. It's a critical milestone, the main thing that we've been pushing towards. And we have achieved it now. The other side of what we talked about, you raise each round of financing. What's the first thing that the founders do with the investor's money? Throw a party. You raise more money, throw a bigger party. What are they celebrating? They actually happen to be celebrating a heightened chance, the data shows, of fearless leader being replaced. That's <laughs> what I call the paradox of entrepreneurial success. Your success has bred your demise. If we think about the founder who is failing as CEO, getting that Donald Trump message that we have to replace you, how is that founder going to react? There's going to be some of the visceral side, but the head would be saying, yes, this is a necessary change. When that founder has been succeeding at leading product development and getting the stamp of approval from investors, is that founder going to be more or less receptive to being replaced as CEO? That's the last person who's going to be open to that, to that message, who's going to be able to hear that. So those successful founders are the ones who are breeding their demise even sooner by sparking that fast growth that outgrows their skills and a lot of times it being on that rocket fuel that they raised as they were inviting those investors into the board. There's all sorts of things, though, in that argument. As an investor, you're making the argument to the founder that this will grow a more valuable venture. We'll have someone who f whose skills fit where we have to go. It's going to increase the chances that we'll be able to succeed at this next stage. That is a key fork in the road in that argument of what they are making to the founders. That is where founder CEO succession is another microcosm of this journey ahead. Essentially what they are arguing is that if you step back and bring someone else in, we have a much higher potential to grow value here. If you continue to be the king of this domain, you're not going to have those skills. We're not going to grow as valuable. You will suffer yourself financially. And so at this fork in the road is where they are facing a rich versus king trade-off. Remain king and have the island be a lot smaller or hand it over to someone else who can grow a continent, who can go and grow something a lot more valuable than you as that founder might be able to do. Easy argument for founders to hear? If you're hearing that at your head level, are you going to have it easier to deal with at the heart level? Sometimes, some founders might be able to. Let's take a look at some of those conditions in terms of the roadmap ahead of seeing those different paths. We're going to go and take that line that we saw, the red line of giving up control, and pull together these forks in the road that we've been seeing as you're making decisions of involving each of these other people. This is where the light bulb has gone off, and we're going to take that line and trace that as one path, and then trace another path across the top. First, as you're at that fork in the road on the co-founding side, you go and you remain Superman versus you go and get the best of the co-founders. Key set of decisions that we looked at about the pros and cons of each of those. Then, next round, you're making decisions about the financing. Are you going to go and be Superman on the financing side, bootstrap? Or are you going to go and get the, the smart money and the terms that we talked about what it comes with? Next step, 
The hires, something we have to skim past a bit, but there's equivalence there. Go and get the been there, done that hires versus the jack of all trades, who might be a lot lower quality, but is going to be a lot more inexpensive than the been there, done that experts. Then the next round of financing. If you go across the top path here, what is the more likely promised land that this is going to bring you to? You've gone, done this solo, bootstrapped it. What's going to be more likely when it comes to the chart that we saw in the red line? You're going to end up owning the whole cake. It might be a much more, a much less valuable cake, a much more of a cupcake because of it. You'll have the full control of it. If you go down the bottom path, what is going to be the more likely scenario that you're going to have? Okay, bigger cake, but with your having had to give up potentially that control going down that line in the hopes of your steak and your slice of that cake being a lot more valuable for having gone down that path. There's also hybrid paths. There are also ways where you can mix it. We could get in a whole bunch into are those better or worse for being able to get to some promised land. But let me just show you the quantitative data on this. Over here on the right, this is where you remain king. And this pattern persists no matter the age of the venture. When you remain king all the way on the right, compared to you've given up control to a new CEO, you've given up control of the board all the way on the left by involving all of those other people, then you have very different outcomes. This is the value of the stake that you have. Your stake is 52% as valuable all the way on the right as king as what it is when you are on the left as a rich founder. If you are motivated by the financial side and you end up all the way on the left, what's your reaction going to be when you get to that promised land? You going to be happy with that outcome? Yeah, you're going to be thrusting your fist in the air. You achieve that promised land of where you were trying to get to. That will be the biggest celebration of your life. What if you were king motivated, motivated by control, and you ended up in the same outcome all the way on the left? How are you going to be feeling? How are you going to feel? <laughs> very bummed out, very upset with where you got to. This was not what I got into this for. I had the idea. I wanted to be able to bring it to life. I wanted to be the one to have that impact on how it translated into a service and an impact on the world. Very different implications. Let's just take a look at some data on entrepreneurial motivations. If we look at the entrepreneurs and then look at the two sides here, what does that look like on the male side? King, 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 rich. The top motivators. We could get into some of the gender differences. It's interesting to think about on the women's side. What does that look like? Queen, good. Someone usually says king, and I have to say, no, queen. <laughs> queen, 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 what really counts in life. And then down at number nine, the rich side. Think about which gender is going to have it easier at each of these forks in the road to be able to decide. Do I want to go the rich path or the king path? If you're trading off 1A versus 1B versus trading off number 1 versus number 9, understanding at the beginning of that path which is going to be that promised land that I want to get to is that critical thing to be thinking about. And so why do I focus on those two motivations, the preponderance of them, as you saw on that last slide, and then also that inherent conflict at these forks in the road as you're making each of these people decisions going forward. And so I promised you just the resources that or it was talking about, at my site, this is where you can go to to get to that sketchbook video that I referred to on making the leap. Also, a self-assessment survey that can help you understand, do I have any biases in my founding dilemmas as I'm going through this path ahead? What are those forks in the road where I have to inject the head into this? Five-minute self-assessment that you can go and take to be able to understand those things. And so just to wrap up, Key things to be thinking about as a founder at 
three different levels. The motivation side, the choices side, and then the decisions that you're making. Why am I doing this? If you can understand this at the beginning of the process, rather than at the end when you regret what you got to, much better way to have driving your decisions off of this so that you're increasing the chances of getting to your promised land. We saw a bunch of choices that early on come back to bite you, understanding that road ahead. So the first is the roadmap of yourself. This is the roadmap of the venture. And at the nexus of the two, how can I make those two things consistent with each other? So that along the way, as I am going down this path of having that impact on that world, of reaching my dreams, how can I make sure I'm not going to become that 65% that are failing because of those ill-informed decisions? And instead, hopefully, you'll be able to go and have the impact on the world that we want you to all have. Good luck with your ventures. I'm looking forward to continuing the dialogue with you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.